4: Let's get this dinner party started. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth.
3: With your hosts Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhagen,
2: and Al Warren. on KCB. 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM
3: Riverside, and
2: 1050
3: AM Palm Springs.
0: Welcome back into the house of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is in the room. Everyone step aside.
2: Yes, I'm the one standing with my hand. I'm going, remember me? See me. Pay, <laughs> pay attention to me.
0: No, no, Mr. Uh, Mister Espionage himself. Yeah, Mr. Wonderful.
2: Yeah, well, somebody's got to do it here. I'm just that person. Yeah, you're here for you're You are the eye candy for the group. Uh-huh. Is that it? Is that, is that my role? Yeah. i tell, tell my wife and my kids that.
0: Yeah, you're you're the sex symbol for the whole show. It's the only reason you're <laughs> here. We don't need What to a hair. lousy show. <laughs> <laughs> well, tastes have changed over the years, so... That's you know, true. Maybe so, you're in style now, so take advantage of it. advice from the
2: Midwest, yeah. Yeah,
0: because as soon as as soon as soon that ends, as soon as you're out of fashion, you're off. Just so it's you know. so sad. Yeah.
4: That's
0: sad. Yeah. Well... Speaking of in fashion, we've got a great writer here, um, so let's let's just bring him in. His new book's called Deep Fake, a Thriller. Mr. Ward Larson, thank you for being here.
3: Howdy. Thanks for having me.
0: Ward, you've been pretty successful. You've been doing this for a little while now, and it seems like you've had a pretty good run. How do you keep things going, you know, over a period of years when you're writing this type of a book, like a thriller, you know, espionage, all, you know, this, this sort of a book. How do you keep it fresh? Well,
3: you know, it has been a long time. I think this is my 15th book, and uh, I never really saw that coming. I, when I wrote the first one about 20 years ago, it, uh, the time has really flown past. But uh, I've never had trouble coming up with uh, the next big idea. I mean, I do one main series, uh, my David Slayton Assassin series, but this is a standalone book. And uh, really, everything I do is contemporary, and all you have to do is read the papers, you know, watch the news every day, and you can get plenty of good ideas for the next story.
0: Do people really believe in a lot of this? Um, they must, right? Because how do I say this? There's a lot of um, crazy stuff that goes on, on on a lot of these books. Um, how do you, How do you keep it so that people find it believable, but yet on the edge, sort of? You know what I mean?
3: Well, reality is, seems pretty on the edge sometimes if you follow (laughs) what's going on in the world. Um, so, you know, I, I've never really had any readers, you know, it's escapism, no doubt. Everybody expects that, but I've never had anybody rarely that say, I just, I just couldn't believe that happened. And, you know, there are some, some pretty extreme things that happens in my, happens in my books. But uh, it's, you know, that's kind of expected in this kind of book, and a thriller, that you really kind of press the edge of what could be.
0: So in this one being a standalone rather than a series, what what do you like doing better?
3: Um, you know, I, I do the series, and, I, and I'll just tell you from a business standpoint, series are probably the way to go for a writer. But it's really nice to, to refresh yourself by doing something a little different, by backing away from what you're doing year in, year out and uh do uh do a standalone now and again and I've been very fortunate my uh, my publisher tour allows me to do that. This book was actually born out of COVID in a way. Um I, I still have a day job. I fly for an airline uh right now and uh, have for many years. And during COVID the airlines offered a time off program where we could uh just stay home for partial pay and just uh you know not come in. And you couldn't go out anywhere you didn't do anything a couple of years ago. So I just stayed home and wrote for 11 months straight and I wrote two books and a novella and Deep Fake was one of those books.
2: Well, let's let's go with that. You've had the, the, the one big series, this Slayton series and the Jammer Davis series and the standalones. And you say you get You read the papers for the plot. Do you start with the plot when you're doing your series, or do you start with your character who's well-developed when you're going to the next book?
3: Well, when you're in a series, of course, you have to kind of design it around the character, where you left him last time, and then pick up from there. But the actual plot, um, generally, yeah, I just get ideas from the headlines or from things I read about technology. I subscribe to some periodicals, a lot of aviation-related stuff, and I get ideas from that. Uh, my most recent two Slayton books, what I've done for the first time, is I've uh, tied two books together where they kind of follow on. Where the, it's sort of a continuing plot for two straight books. The rest of them are all pretty much where you can read one and then it's it's completely different the next time. But then I have the, my most recent two books that came out last year, Assassin's Edge, and one coming out later this year, Assassin's Mark. Are tied into basically the same plot, a continuation.
2: Did you like that?
3: Um, You know, I'm neither here nor there. It worked and it uh, gave me some fuel to go for uh, two books. So, so that was good. And, uh, you know, going forward, I got to come up with something new, but I don't have any doubt that I'll, I'll find something.
2: Yeah, see, I got the, the series and I tied the two books together and I find myself going, boy, I need to answer those questions. I got people who are looking for those. Do you think about the reader and asking those questions as you're? putting these books together, especially if you have two that are tied together?
3: Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, you know people are going to tie those together. But I think you don't want to take it too far where you have to read the books in sequence because it's, it's very often that the readers you know, see your most recent book and they've never read your stuff and they want to they wanna, you know start it. But they say, well, do I have to go back and read book one? Because now that I'm on book 10 in the series, that's, that's a big ask. So I try not to get them too much where they have to be read in sequence or things won't make sense. So that's why I I do it that way, because people read them in in very odd orders, whatever they can find at the library, whatever's on sale on Kindle, and uh, you don't want to take that away.
0: How how do you think uh, the spy thriller genre has changed over the last 20 years that you've been writing it?
3: Definitely technology has become, um, you know, more of a factor. Um, just the things that uh, government organizations, organized crime and intelligence agencies can, can do and see and manipulate now. It's changed very much. Um, just, I mean, I look back at my first book, which again, I wrote 20 years ago and just back then, uh, things like cell phones. I mean, we, cell phones are not really a thing, smartphones. And, uh, you know, that didn't exist in that first book. So it kind of dates it a little. Um, so definitely technology has changed. And um, I think the world has become a little bit more of a lawless place in certain corners, which is good for thriller writers. I mean, you've got, you know, the Wagner Group in Africa that's, um, you know, basically um, imposing itself on, on countries and areas and populations, which is basically just an organized crime syndicate. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of fuel there and, and certain things like that. Maybe it didn't exist, you know, 10, 20 years ago.
2: Well, then how do you do your research, especially if you're locked up for 11 months during COVID? <laughs> uh, I mean, what wh- what do you do from 20 years ago that's different than you do now for the research for your books? Because there's a lot of good detail and a lot of atmospherics and uh, the places are important.
3: Yeah, well, thanks for that. Um, I, do, I do travel some to support the books, um, but... I don't always write about places where I've been. I usually write about places. I'll have been to places like that if I write about a, a certain venue. Um, but really, a lot of it's online research, too. I mean, you can get so much um, from from online research these days. And once you've been doing it for a few years, you know, with the, in the vein of writing, as I have been, you kind of get better or more efficient at it. So you can really come up with some good, as you say, atmospherics for it. And, um, and yeah, plot point details. You, you can do translations into local words and languages and things like that. And, uh, it's, it's, it's very helpful.
0: Well, how do you decide? There's, there's so many crimes and there's so many things going on in the world. Like, and like you say, every day you can look at the paper or look, go on the internet and there's just so many things going on and there's more lawlessness as, as you sort of said. How do you decide what you're going to put into a book or have it in, involved in what you're writing?
3: You know, it's sometimes things just click with you, and it's hard to say exactly why. And I think as a reader, you know, the same thing. Certain books, certain plots kind of click with you and stick with you. Um, I think Defake Fake um, was probably born, and I didn't even realize at the time, but out of the last presidential election, there was just so much coverage of it. And, it, and there was so much talk about, you know, the candidates, and it really made me think, you know, about how, how well we know these people. And, it, you know, it's interesting, this, this plot I have in Deep Fake, where we have a candidate who all of a sudden becomes a serious presidential candidate who we really don't know a lot about and, uh, and who his wife may not know as much about as she thinks. Um, and, and it's, it struck me that uh, the most recent election, George Santos in New York, you know, he's a guy who got elected uh, to Congress out of New York, and it uh, turns out that very little of what, uh, what he said about himself was true, and so I think it kind of, that you know, that stuck with me a couple years ago when I started writing Fake, and I think it it's re- reiterated in this most recent election that how well do we know these people?
0: I heard that he wrote um, all of Ward Larson's books. Yeah. yeah I, I already wrote
2: Deep <laughs> Fake.
3: That's what it, it's in his resume. <laughs> I heard he spoke, but he the first man on the moon, too. <laughs> yeah.
2: But the, well, how do you then treat those sensitive topics? You know, Deep Fake is a political book set in Washington, D.C. Do you leave things out? Do you self censor yourself when you're as you're thinking, oh boy, I don't want to offend. I can't use that. Or I don't really care. I'm going forward. Or, I'm, or you find that middle ground.
3: Yeah, I mean, the politics is very touchy, and I, you know, basically, I, I, he is on a, the a Republican Party because I had to choose a party. But uh, other than that, I don't get into policy. I don't get into specific names or personalities. Uh, I, I stay away from anything that's going to be a you know a hot point. And still, I know somebody is going to write me a letter and say you should have made him a Democrat or something like that. <laughs> it's, there's a sometimes you just go in, but I. I just did my best throughout the book. And a lot of it's when you're editing, you kind of go back and you see things you wrote originally and go, ah, maybe I can tone that down or maybe I can take that a little farther. So, you know, the rewriting is part of it as well.
0: Well, I guess the way, um, without really getting to politics, but I guess the way that politicians have behaved in the last, let's say four or five years or so, that must change the way, or influence the way you write your characters. It's got to have some sort of impact because you can say things about, let's say Trump or even about, you know, the Santos, any of those people that do kind of unusual things in the public. And that's something that you never dealt with before 2015, 16. So, you know, before that, you might've said, oh, that's unbelievable. But now, so does it loosen up the way you have your characters behave?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the the center points of this story is that this individual, Bryce Ridgway, is his name in the book. The character he kind of becomes famous overnight. He's a first-year congressman, and an event comes up where he really becomes a sensation. And it really is driven by uh, the internet, by social media, and the degree to which we are now we now our politics are driven by social media has really changed the whole landscape. And again, it's, you know, it's what is real and what's not. I mean, the title of the book, Deep Fake, is is not directly related to the plot, but I think it, it serves as kind of a metaphor for, you know, can you believe what you see? Um, I think a lot of you, you you've probably seen, I know a lot of listeners have, uh, there was a group of, uh, a couple of videos uh, relating to Deep uh, Fake. If, if you Google Tom Cruise and Deep Fake, you'll see a video of Tom Cruise and it's in did you guys see this one?
2: Yeah, I teach this. I teach misinformation fakes, yeah. Your face.
3: Yep. Okay. I use them. Yeah, well then you know what I mean. And it's a video of Tom Cruise, but it turns out it's not real at all. It was all computer generated. And it really, you know, where are we going to be in five or ten years when anybody with a decent computer and a little bit of education can make a, a video about anybody saying anything that looks perfectly convincing? I mean, it's it's scary stuff. I don't know if we as humans are wired to to understand what you know our perceptions uh being altered so
0: yeah it's it's kind of unusual you know the whole the way the world's changing and and right in front of us i think uh it's it's going to be a big adjustment for us as it goes period you know um how do you put your own experiences into these books you know like you cuz you you were a uh fighter jet fighter um uh, and you've had quite a history with the US Air Force and things like that do you, do you, does that really get into the book
3: uh this book in particular there's not much flying in it. usually in my other books the spy throwers I usually weave some flying uh into the books um I had an earlier Jamba Davis series that were very flying centric and aircraft accident investigation type you know who who done it but uh this one not so much but yes I usually do uh work flying into it when I was in the Air Force, I went through their accident investigation school, which uh, you know is where you basically do – the military does its own accident investigations versus the NTSB, who does civilian accident investigations. So I really learned a lot out of that. It was very interesting stuff. It's sort of a police procedural type thing. And um, so, yeah, a lot of my flying stuff experiences do work their way into my books, although they're not really centered around
2: that. Hey, Ward, do you ever just get jammed up? I mean, it's just – You've written a lot of series. Uh, you got characters. You're doing your standalones. You just kind of go. I I know what I want to say. I don't know how to say it. I just need to back off. Or what do you do? Or do you get sort of like writer's fatigue? I guess. <laughs>
3: wouldn't say for the long term i've had moments here and there where you're sitting behind the computer and you just say i gotta get away from this and and i think i mentioned that you know deep bait writing it as a standalone was a bit of therapy for writing that same series you know every year for you know four or five years running i had written uh, an assassin book so but i haven't ever just hit a wall where i just couldn't go on other than just a, a momentary thing
0: how do you how do you experience your characters like, um, And I ask that because a lot of fiction writers will say all sorts of things, like uh, they'll see them like a movie, they hear voices, they, uh, um, they're they considered like family or friends or children. I, I hear it all. How is it for a spy thriller writer like you?
3: You know, I, I, I've heard that kind of thing before, where people kind of are dreaming in his persona and yeah. things like that. <laughs> I've not hit that point. Um, I, you know, to me, I almost view it as like a reader. It's just, it's a character and a story. And I try to keep him true to what he's been doing, to some ideals and what he's, what he's felt for many years. He's got a family now in a long-running series, which kind of complicates things a bit. And, I, you know, I think it certainly, you know, reflects on my own experiences. But uh, I, 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 I wouldn't say that I have, you know, associated that closely with the character that I, that I'm really putting myself in their shoes because that would be a little tough.
0: And, and so outlining, um, do you outline your books? I guess, I guess you must, when you're doing the series, you must, you've, you must have some sort of a, um, a plan or a way of keeping track of your characters and how they change through the series. Um, but are you a, are you a big outliner?
3: No, not at all. I tried it once, and it just didn't work for me. I ended up spending more time on the outline. I think it was on my second or third book, and, uh, and it just it didn't work for me. I'm one of those panthers they call them. I don't know what the percentages are, but uh, a good number of writers. you know, I kind of have an idea of where I'm headed near the end, and then I just start with page one and start writing, and that's the only way I can do it.
2: I'm half and half. I have a piece of paper here with lots of stickies on it in different colors. I can't see the story. In my, you know, I got certain points I'm writing to. I'm, do you do that? You say I know I want this character to do this at some point, so I'm going to write to that point. And then I got another one in the future, so I'm, I don't know how it's going to happen. I'm just going to write to that point, or you really just wide open? Do you know your end, sort of?
3: I'm pretty wide open, but it does create some problems because sometimes you you got to look back and, and remember what you'd written, you know, two months ago, you know, 50 or 100 pages ago. So, you know, the outline, I can see there are situations where it would help to keep things organized. And, again, usually when you reread the book for the first time and do a rewrite, you, you hopefully catch those things that don't quite mesh, that don't quite make sense. But, uh, you yeah, know, I think every writer, once you've written two or three books, you kind of get in a flow where, you know, you do things your way. And I've seen, you know, walls full of sticky notes that other people use. I've seen, you know, outlines that are virtually as long as the book itself. I basically consider my, you know, my hundred thousand word manuscript as, as, as my outline. And then I start rewriting from there because I do a lot of rewriting. So uh, that's, that's kind of how I approach it.
2: Do you know how it's going to end? Is that, is that also just something
3: that happens? Yeah. I pretty much always know how it's going to end, except, you know, the, the basic end of it. Yes, I always know that. Usually there's some kind of plot point at the end. I want to bring it to some climax.
2: The old cliche, writers write and, and writers read. Do you read inside the genre? Or do you, What do you read to help build your sort of imagination as you're going to write your books?
3: Yeah, usually if, when I do read, I read inside the genre. I read uh, Mark Greenier. or... Orphan X or something like that. Um, Joe, Joe Goldberg. Y- yeah, and <laughs> the problem I have is just finding the time to write because I'm still I'm still flying, not quite full time, but I fly uh, for an airline and I uh, and you now I'm writing. Well, two books coming out this year, so just finding the time to read is my challenge. I I actually drive a couple hours a week, usually uh, getting to and from the flying job, and I do audio books going to and from that. So I can listen to about one a month of those. And uh, so I, I usually get in the latest. Michael Connelly, that kind of thing.
2: When you, if you go out the, out of the genre, do you, where do you go? Do you like Ben McIntyre or that, that? You
3: know, I like nonfiction. I read, um, I do some, you know, Eric Larson, some uh, historical nonfiction. Um, read a book called The Aviators by Winston Groom, of all people, not long ago. It was very interesting. Of course, with my background, I kind of like the aviation thing. But uh, yeah, I like some historical nonfiction.
0: Did you have a favorite character that you've written?
3: That I've written? Um, well, of course I'd have to say David Slayton, the hero of all my books. Um, he's he's served, served me pretty well. I sometimes have a lot of fun with the minor throwaway characters. A lot of times the bad guys who, uh, who, who come and go and often don't meet a good end. But uh, I think in my last book I had a a Serbian warlord who, uh, who met an untimely end. But it's, it's just fun to, <laughs> to kind of create those people, especially if you know they're going to get off at the end. Yeah.
0: Well, do you, do you have a, um, a problem getting into the heads of, of the evil character in the book? The person that's doing bad things? Uh,
3: I wouldn't say a problem. No, it's uh, again, reading the news, you read about some pretty evil people, evil things in the news, and you can kind of adapt those things. Uh, To me, you know, Russian oligarchs with their yachts and all that, it's fun to play with that. And uh, you can, it's not too hard to kind of think as they would think, I'd say. Um, What about you, Joe?
2: Yeah. Oh, I, I love my minor characters and my and my bad guys. They're so much more fun than you know my my lead characters. But I, I agree with that. I think if you can find somebody, I always try to find a real person to base my especially my bad characters on. Because if you if you don't, people go, "Oh, that's cliche." Oh, it's the bad Russian oligarch. Oh, it's the crazy Chinese drug guy. Yeah, well, they exist. You know, this is right, and and that's what fiction is. Where you know, yeah, I'm going to explore fiction with a and make it as close to reality as you possibly can, you know, to give you that escapism. That's probably where I kill myself the most is trying to find those little references to real life where people can go, ah, I, I can believe that, rather than going, oh, head-slapping, unbelievable, jump the shark moment.
3: And it's it's hard to come up with both plots and bad guys and good guys that haven't been done before. You know, in a thriller genre, there's so many, so many, only so many ways you can you can put the world at risk and it's hard to come up with, with angles that haven't been done, you know, many, many times. Yeah,
0: exactly. One million dollars. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I kill you. You kill me.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and do you, do you, do you kill off people? You really like, you know, in real life, bad people. Do you ever do that? <laughs>
2: I'm a are you saying he's a murderer? Is that? Is no, that no. In your
0: books. Are, you, are you killing people off the real life? Yeah, are you killing people? Are you doing this in real? No, I mean, I said like in your books. Like, uh there, we've talked to other people before that have said they've had people in their lives or someone that's cut them off in traffic and they use that person as a character and, and they always sort of have a bad ending by name. Well, no, they'll change the name, but use their, <laughs> use their characteristics, like, you know, who they are as a person and, and kind of why, you know, they might have bad behavior
3: or something like that. So I've never done that consciously, but probably subconsciously. I have, like I went back and looked at it in that vein.
2: I think we had Tara Moss killer college professor. Is that who, who did it? Yeah, she hated the guy.
3: Here. <laughs> uh,
0: one book. If someone's never heard of you before, um, what one book would you tell them to pick up to to find out who Ward Larson is as a writer?
3: I think I wrote a book called Assassin Silence, and it was the I think, third book in the uh, in the David Slayton Assassin series. And I just always kind of had a liking of that one. I like how the the book began, and uh, it just had a it just seemed to come together well. So I, I think you know if I was gonna give a book to somebody and try to sell them on the series, that's the book I would give and there's Assassin's Silence. And uh, I also did another one, um, a standalone, the last standalone they did was called Cutting Edge and I thought that was really, that was a fun book to write. Yeah. Yep. I had an interesting premise. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of a company called Neuralink, owned by Elon Musk. This book came out about five years ago, but uh, that's kind of where I got the idea. Was this company Neuralink, and it started right before I, I started working on this book. It's uh, the whole um, purpose of this company is mind web interface. That's what they do. They uh, put out a video last year, I think it was, of a monkey playing Pong with using nothing but his thoughts. And this stuff is is really right around the corner. What it basically in the book, as I put it together, I had a Coast Guard rescue swimmer who was in an accident up in Alaska, a young guy, and he wakes up and he's injured and he's all beaten to heck. And he um, is in a cabin in uh, the in coastal Maine, and he has no idea how he got there. And uh, there's one nurse taking care of him, and slowly he kind of gets brought back to health over the course of a few weeks. And then one night he's out on the beach, and uh, he just happens to be away from the cabin, and he sees men approaching the cabin, and they raid the cabin and kill the nurse, and they're obviously looking for him, and he runs away, and he managed to escape. But within the first few chapters, what he begins to realize is he uh, he has the ability to connect to the Internet just through his thoughts, and he has a little screen in his eye where he can read things, get information, and uh, it's and he's, so he's trying to figure out what it is he's capable of doing. And basically, without giving too much away, he has mind web interface as part of a government program. He was designed as an experiment. Basically, they didn't think he would survive, and they did some surgical procedures on him. And he it's sort of almost like a born identity thing where he, you know, he did lose his memory, but he has this new capability and he has no idea what he can do. And he goes through this whole book trying to figure out what's been done to him, what he's capable of, all while people are trying to chase him down and get rid of
2: him. Well, that's a, that's a plot with someone who would say, oh, far fetched, far fetched, but you know what? You're, you're there, right?
3: Everything I use in this book is either being experimented with today or already exists. Cochlear implants, uh, retinal implants, it's all there. It makes you wonder, you know, where are we going to be in 20 years and how are we as as humans going to deal with, you know, the the rate of change with technology?
2: Well, that's actually a good question there is, are you continuing as you write your series or your standalones looking out for those things, saying, I need those who wrote about Ukraine getting attacked by Russia in several books are like, oh, you know, they they predicted the future in some sense. Are you going to go that way at all? Is it pretty much going to be based in what's happening now?
3: Um I, I'm trying to look forward. And again it's you know, the the actual books, the stories tend to be smaller scale, not so much, you know, Broad wars of, you know, that's sort of the backdrop of the books, but that's not really the meat and potatoes of chapter to chapter. So it's more smaller things that kind of creep in. Um, I, Brad Taylor, who, who writes thrillers very well, he had a thing in one of his recent books. Um, his team was, it which it's a military, you know, assault team, top secret and all that, but they were trying to, um, figure out the, the, they had a, a villa, I think it was, they were going to raid, and they wanted to see what the layout inside the villa was. They wanted to know you know, a map of the rooms. And they were able to, through hacking, figure out that there's a Roomba in this place. And the Roomba actually, as it goes around and cleans, it maps out the interior of the house. So they were able to get a perfect map of the inside of the house, including where the furniture was, based on the Roomba.
2: I'm going to shoot my Roomba right now. I'm, gonna, <laughs> stuff is- yeah, I'm tossing my Roomba out the window.
0: No, that's, I've heard that when I got so, it. That was the big, don't buy a Roomba. They, they'll know where your, how your house is.
3: Stuff like that. I mean, it's so backdoor, but it, it actually exists. It's out there. It's happening. People can find these things out of, you know, especially when you, you talk about the government who has unlimited ability, you know, the NSA, to, to get into signals, to get into electronics like that. Uh, their hacking is virtually unlimited, and that's, you know, it's pretty scary to think about, but it also can be useful to characters in the book if they have access to that information.
0: So what makes a good book to you? What is how, what is it that uh, you like about a certain book? Like, what what characteristics?
3: You know, I, I'm real taken by good storytelling, and there are certain authors to me that, that have just, just the pros. You know, I'm still, maybe it's old school, maybe it's not as you know, it's a little passe right now, but I really like, you know, the old Frederick Forsyth and, you know, Daniel Silva's a really lovely writer. I liked how he just phrases things. And, and I really am taken by, you know, good prose, just attractive prose. that's easy on the eye, easy to read.
2: Let me back up even further than that, Lord. You're in aviation, your career. Why do you write? Why become a writer? Where would that come from?
3: Um... You know, good question. I, I've always been a reader, and I've never met a writer that wasn't a reader first. And I never took any uh, writing courses in college beyond freshman English. I never went to writing groups. I, you know, It never even dawned on me to become an author. Uh, but when I was with the airlines, I had a fair amount of time on my hands, and I was reading a good number of thrillers. And I think I read a particularly bad one one day, and it just kind of set it aside and go, I could do better than that. And I don't remember who it was, honestly. And, uh, and I just started playing with Uh-oh. it. Got...
2: Joe Goldberg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Say Go ahead. I was reading my, Sorry. So I didn't mean to interrupt.
3: <laughs> so I just, uh, I got a laptop and started pecking away. And the first one took many, many years to, to get through, but, uh, just wanted to see if I could do it. And I did. And I just sort of got published out of the blue. It wasn't really any big master plan. And uh, you know I was still flying for the airline, so I had a comfortable day job. But I had enough time on my hands where I could write. And once I got the first one uh, out there sold, uh, they said, "Well, where's the next one?" I was like, "I don't know. I guess I'll have to work on that." So I wrote another one, and it's you know for the last 15 years it's been a book a year ever since.
2: And the most difficult thing in those those years for the person who's writing and has another you know real career, what's what's been the challenge?
3: it's to do well. I think it's it's time consuming, and I think Joe would probably you know second me on this. Uh, I don't quit your day job expecting to you know make a living out of writing. Um, you have to have you know you have to find the time for it. It's basically I'm right now. I'm at pretty much two full time jobs, and that won't be there forever. I probably won't fly for too many more years, but uh, you know the writing I can do forever. And as to why I do it, you know I I think it's it's. Nice to have a thought that, you know, after you're gone, which, you know, we all will be someday, that you leave something behind, maybe some stories behind. And yes. 20 30 years, somebody's going to see a book, tattered book, sitting on a shelf and pick it up and, and enjoy it. Say, so, yeah, that's, that's a pretty cool story. So that's part of it.
2: I wholeheartedly agree with that. I've heard that from other authors, too. In fact, it is what drives me sort of not to be forgotten. Uh, having something on the shelf that the grandkids and great-grandkids can go, hey, I know that guy. In fact, I, I signed the book to my grandkids and said, you know, all these things said, don't forget me. And I put the book on their shelf.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a legacy, a little bit. Do you have a
0: subtext? Do you, do you have a theme or a meaning that underlies the book when you write it, even if it, maybe it comes out organically, not planned?
3: I wouldn't say there's some greater moral theme. I think the the lessons i might try to impart are usually smaller scale and usually have to do with you know justice you know getting what you getting what you read kind of thing um but going in no i don't design around some great moral compass or structure i think jack carr does that a little bit with his series i've, I've noticed he really gets into the to the bit about you know that our leaders are failing us you know on the national and maybe senior military level and he definitely has a little bit of an agenda going on and it works for him it's fine you know and i I get where he's coming from but i don't think i really do that
0: what do you hope a person gets out of the book after they read it is it just entertainment
3: I really, yeah. I, I hope they just get a little escapism, a little entertainment. I hope they, because as a reader, you know, that's what I want. I wanted just a book that I can kind of lose myself in and, and and learn some things. I, I would like them to to learn a few things. Um, and so I I do, you know, do some research with that in mind. But basically, enjoyment is the big thing. Yeah. What do you
0: get out of a book when you write it?
3: Good question. I mean, definitely there's a sense of self-satisfaction. I'm not doing it for the money. I mean, I, you know, I'm an airline pilot. I do okay. It's, it's really more just, you know, the satisfaction of being able to write a story. You meet a lot of really interesting people as you're doing your research and, uh, and in the publishing industry. Um, there's a lot of a lot of very cool people. I go and I know Joe does as well to uh, you know Thriller Fest and BowserCon some of the big conferences for writers and uh, it's really nice mingling with the other writers. There's some very interesting uh, people with interesting backgrounds.
2: Hey Ward, have you ever thought of getting out of genre? You know, I want to write the Great American Novel, my, my, the Kill a Mockingbird, or or is it pretty much you're going to stay in this type of book? this espionage themed thriller series
3: i've thought about it yeah i mean i read the occasional literary book i read uh gentleman in moscow not too oh, long yeah. ago great book and that's you know it's such a great book and it's just, you know you, you you say what the story is you know if you're on a radio show well the story's about a guy who's gets stuck in a hotel in moscow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for his entire life <laughs> well it doesn't sound <laughs> much of the story but the writing is so good you know i you know i i wish I could write like that. And would I like to try someday? Yeah. But if I went to my publisher with that, they'd probably say, mm, nah, probably not. Um, you know, th- there is a market you have to, you know, what, that's the thing as writer. Once you get into a certain genre, once you get a certain reputation, then that's what your readers will expect. That's what your publisher will expect. And it's hard to get out from that. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, you put yourself in that position and, you know, I, I enjoy the books that I write. But, uh, yeah, occasionally I dream, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I wrote that great literary novel or something like that? Typecast as a
2: writer. Now,
0: do you have a website and are you social media friendly? Do you like readers to interact with you? How do you? How do people find you? Yes,
3: absolutely. Ward Larson is W-A-R-D-L-A-R-S-E-N. I'm not an O-N. I'm an S-E-N. Ward Larson on Facebook. You'll find me on Twitter. I'm on there quite a bit, and it's FordLarsen.com. Oh,
0: fantastic. Of course, we'll have that up on our website as well. Do you ever go back to your old books and first books and read them and kind of go, ooh, and want to change
3: them? There are, in the very first book, there were some things I did that dated the character. And then just due to circumstances, uh, the, there was about seven or eight years between book one and book two. So it, it aged my character. Now I'm on book ten and you know, there's a couple ways to approach that. You can, um, you know, have him get older or you can ignore it. And I, have chosen the more or less ignored phase. Um, I, I didn't want him to get to be, you know, in the you know, 50s or 60s, still doing the kinds of things he does. I think that kind of, you know, really limits me. So of course I feel not that there's anything wrong with being in your fifties and (laughs) sixties.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Says the old
3: guy. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, you know I chose to basically ignore, and I've never gotten any complaints about that. You know, people just want the next story. They don't really care if you're you're perfectly true to the calendar. But you know, some people do that. Michael Michael Connolly is aging. Harry Bosch, Harry Bosch has got to be you know at least seventy now. And, uh, you know, and his age, and he's showing it.
2: Gabriel Alon uh, is growing older.
3: Gabriel Alon is getting older. I asked Kyle
2: this at and about about Mitch, and he goes, uh, he keeps him in the same universe, right? He doesn't have to worry about aging him. So that was specifically. So you're in the same same, uh, boat as that.
3: That's the way I approach it, yeah. And, you know, same with Reacher, Jack Reacher. He, you know, he doesn't really, he's always just Reacher. He doesn't get any older. Yeah, it's like Joe Goldberg.
2: Yeah, look at my profile pics. He's a mortal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you guys are killing me. I can't He's be immortal.
0: <laughs> He's still got it, you know. Well, fascinating, fascinating book uh, and uh, writer. We're glad you took the time to come on the show. The book is called Deep Fake, a Thriller, and our guest is Ward Larson. So thank you for being here.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Ward. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show.